You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Barbara Kingsolver. This program originally aired in 2009. This archive audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. This begins in Isla Pichol, Mexico, 1929. In the beginning were the howlers. They always commenced their bellowing in the first hour of dawn, just as the hem of the sky began to whiten. It would start with just one, his forced rhythmic groaning like a saw blade. That aroused others near him, nudging them to bawl along with his monstrous tune. Soon the maroon-throated howls would echo back from other trees farther down the beach until the whole jungle filled with roaring trees. As it was in the beginning, so it is every morning of the world. The boy and his mother believed it was saucer-eyed devils screaming in those trees, fighting over the territorial right to consume human flesh. The first year after moving to Mexico to stay at Enrique's house, they woke up terrified at every day's dawn to the howling. Sometimes she ran down the tiled hallway to her son's bedroom, appearing in the doorway with her hair loose, her feet like iced fish in the bed, pulling the crocheted bedspread tight as a web around the two of them, listening. It should have been like a storybook here. That is what she'd promised him back in the cold little bedroom in Virginia, North America. If they ran away to Mexico with Enrique, she could be the bride of a wealthy man, and her son would be the young squire in a hacienda surrounded by pineapple fields. The island would be encircled with a shiny band of sea like a wedding ring, and somewhere on the mainland was its gem, the oil fields where Enrique made his fortune. But the storybook was the prisoner of Zenda. He was not a young squire, and his mother, after many months, was still no bride. Enrique was their captor, surveying their terror with a cool eye while eating his breakfast. That howling is the aullados, he would say, slicing into his eggs with a fork and knife. They howl at one another to settle out their territories before they begin a day of hunting for food. Their food might be us, mother and son agreed, when they huddled together inside the spiderweb of bedspread, listening to a rising tide of toothsome roars. You had better write all this in your notebook, she said, the story of what happened to us in Mexico. So when nothing is left of us but bones, someone will know where we went. She said to start this way. In the beginning were the aullados, crying for our blood. Enrique had lived his whole life in that hacienda, ever since his father built it and flogged the indios into planting his pineapple fields. He had been raised to understand the usefulness of fear. So it was nearly a year before he told them the truth. The howling is only monkeys. He didn't even look across the table when he said it, only at the important eggs on his plate. He hid a scornful smile under his mustache, which is not a good hiding place. Every ignorant Indian in the village knows what they are. 
You would too if you went out in the morning instead of hiding in bed like a pair of sloths. It was true. The creatures were long-tailed monkeys eating leaves. How could such a howling come from a thing so honestly ordinary? But it did. The boy crept outdoors early and learned to spot them, high in the veil of branches against white sky. Hunched, woolly bodies balanced on swaying limbs, their tails reaching out to stroke the branches like guitar strings. Sometimes the mother monkeys cradled little babes, born to precarious altitudes, clinging for their lives. So there weren't any tree demons. And Enrique was not really a wicked king. He was only a man. He looked like the tiny man on top of a wedding cake, the same round head with parted, shiny hair, the same small mustache. But the boy's mother was not the tiny bride. And of course, there is no place on that cake for a child. When Enrique wanted to ridicule him after that, he didn't even need to mention devils. He only rolled his eyes up at the trees. The devil here is a boy with too much imagination, he usually said. That was like a mathematics problem. It gave the boy a headache because he couldn't work out which was the wrong part of the equation, being a boy or being imaginative. Enrique felt a successful man needed no imagination at all. Okay, that was the promise, and I'll give you a hint. Novels are symbolic. <laughs> it's not really about monkeys, but you knew that. Um, okay, shall I go on? Shall I read another passage? Yes, okay. This is just a few pages later. This, here you get to know the, boys, uh, the boy and his mother, Salome. You get to know a little bit about their relationship. On Saturday night before Holy Week, Salome wanted to go into town to hear the music. Her son would have to go too, as she needed an elbow to hang upon while walking around the square. She preferred to call him by his middle name, William, or just Will, conditioned as that is on future events. You will. Though on her tongue, of course, it sounded like wheel, a thing that serves, but only when in motion. Salome Huerta was her name. She had run away at a young age to become an American Sally, and then Sally Shepherd for a while, but nothing ever lasted long. American Sally was finished. This was the year of Salome pouting, her last one in the hacienda on Isla Pichol, though no one knew it yet. That day, she had pouted because Enrique had no intention of walking around with her on the Socolo just to show off a frock. He had too much work to do. Work meant sitting in his library, running both hands through his slick hair, drinking mezcal, and sweating through his collar while working out colonnades of numbers. By this means, he learned whether he had money up to his mustache this week or only up to his bollocks. Salome put on the new frock, painted a bow on her mouth, 
took her son by the arm and walked to town. They smelled the socalo first, roasted vanilla beans, coconut milk candies, boiled coffee. The square was packed with couples walking entwined, their arms snaking around one another like the vines that strangle tree trunks. The girls wore striped wool skirts, lace blouses, and their narrow-waisted boyfriends. The mood of the fiesta was enclosed in a perfect square, four long lines of electric bulbs strung from posts at the corners, fencing out a bright piece of night just above everyone's heads. The musicians stood in the little round belvedere whose pointed roof and wrought iron railings were all freshly painted white, along with everything else, including the giant old fig trees around the square. Their trunks blazed in the darkness, but only up to a certain point, as if a recent flood of whitewash through town had left a high water mark. Salome seemed happy to float with the moving river of people around the square, even though in her elegant lizard skin shoes and flapper crepe that showed her legs, she looked like no other person there. The crowd parted for her. Probably it pleased her to be the green-eyed Spaniard among the Indians, or rather the Criolla, Mexican-born but pure nonetheless, with no Indian blood mixed in. Her blue-eyed half-American son was less pleased with his position, a tall weed growing among the broad-faced townspeople. They would have made a good illustration for a book showing the castes of the nation, as the school books did in those days. Next year, said Salome in English, pinching his elbow with her fierce crab claws of love, you'll be here with your own girl. This is the last Noche Palmas you'll want to walk around here with your old wrinkle. She liked using American slang, especially in crowds. This is posalutely the berries, she would announce, putting the two of them inside an invisible room with her words and closing the door. I won't have a girlfriend. You'll turn 14 next year. You're already taller than President Portes Hill. Why wouldn't you have a girlfriend? Portes Hill isn't even a real president. He only got in because Obregón was iced. And maybe you will likewise ascend to power after some girl's first novio gets the sack? Doesn't matter how you get the job, ducky. She'll still be yours. Mother, next year you could have this whole town if you want it. But you'll have the girl. This is all I'm saying. You'll go off and leave me alone. It was a game she played. Very hard to win. Or if you don't like it here, mother, you could go somewhere else. Some smart city where people have better entertainments than walking in circles around the Socolo. And, she persisted, you'd still have the girl. Not just a girl, but the girl, already an enemy. What do you care? You have Enrique. You make him sound like a case of the pox. In front of the wrought iron bandstand, the crowd had cleared a space for dancing. 
Old men in sandals held stiff arms around their barrel-shaped wives. Mother, next year, no matter what, you won't be old. She rested her head against his shoulder as they walked. He had won. Salome hated that her son was now taller than she was. The first time she noticed, she was furious, then morose. In her formula, formula of life, this meant she was two-thirds dead. The first part of life is childhood. The second is your child's childhood. And then the third, old age. Another mathematics problem with no practical solution, especially for the child. Growing backward, becoming unborn, that would have been just the thing. They stopped to watch the mariachis on the platform, handsome men with puckered lips giving long kisses to their brass horns. Trails of silver buttons led down the sides of their tight black trousers. The socolo was jammed now. Men and women kept arriving from the pineapple fields with the day's dust still on their feet, shuffling out of the darkness into the square of electric light. The married couples began to surrender dancing space to a younger group, girls with red yarn braided into their hair and wound around their heads into thick crowns. Their white dresses swirled like froth, with skirts so wide they could take the hems in their fingertips and raise them up to make sudden wings like butterflies fluttering as they turned. The men's high-heeled boots cut hard at the ground, drumming like penned stallions. When the music paused, they leaned across their partners in the manner of animals preparing to mate. Move away, come back. The girls waggled their shoulders. The men put handkerchiefs under their arms and then waved them beneath the girls' chins. Salome decided she wanted to go home immediately. We would have to walk, mother. Natividad won't come for us until 11, because that's what you told him. Then we'll walk, she said. Just wait another half hour. Otherwise, we'll be walking in the dark. Bandits might murder us. Nobody will murder us. The bandits are all in the Sokolo trying to steal purses. Salome was practical, even as a hysteric. <laughs> you hate to walk. What I hate is watching these primitives showing off. A she-ghost, a she-goat in a dress is still a she-goat. Darkness fell down on everything then, like a curtain. Someone must have shut off the lights. The crowd breathed out. The butterfly girls had set glasses with lighted candles onto their braid-crowned heads. As they danced, their candles floated across an invisible surface, like reflections of the moon across a lake. Salome was so determined to walk home, she had already started in the wrong direction. It wasn't easy to overtake her. Indian girls, she spat. What kind of man would chase after that? A corn eater will never be any more than she is. The dancers were butterflies. From a hundred paces, Salome could see the dirt under these girls' fingernails, but not their wings.
All right, I'm going to read you one last passage that's very short. Um, just because I want to give you, I will move you a little bit forward in the book, not very far. We're still in Mexico, but as you know, this, as you could probably tell, this Salome is not going to stay uh, anywhere very long. They, they um, within two years, have moved to Mexico City. Um, Harrison Shepard, her son, who's the narrator of this book, he's the, he's the character you will follow all the way through until the 1950s in the United States. Um, he... He, the, for, for reasons, uh, for various reasons I won't explain, he can't go to regular school in, uh, he can't get into the regular school in Mexico City, so she puts him into um, what they call a school for cretins and boys of bad character, uh, which really existed. Um, they were run by nuns. And um, so he doesn't like it very much, and so he just do he doesn't go. And Instead, he gets his education on the streets, and he hangs around in the marketplaces, and you just see a lot of life in, um, in 19, 1930s Mexico City. And this is um, an occasion in, the, in one of the outdoor markets when the narrator sees for the first time a person who will become extremely important in the rest of his life and in, in the rest of the novel. She is a, a real, per she is in fact a, an historical figure who plays an important role in this novel. I won't identify her, I'll see if you can perhaps guess who she is. 29 September. Today, and, oh, and I should also say that this is written as, most of the novel is, is presented as journal entries, his journal. 29 September. Today at the Melchor Market, a fantastical sight, a servant girl with a birdcage on her back, full of birds. She wore her, sh her blue shawl wrapped around the cage and tied in front to hold it. The willow cage must have been very light because she was not bent over, yet it towered over her head with turrets like a Japanese pagoda and full of birds, green and yellow, flapping about like dreams trying to escape from a skull. She looked like an angel moving down the rows, following her mistress, looking at no one. The mistress had stopped to haggle with a man and buy another bird. She was so tiny from the back she also looked like a servant girl. But when she turned, her skirts and silver earrings whirled, and her face was very startling. An Azteca queen with ferocious black eyes. Her hair was braided in a heavy crown like the Isla Pichol girls, and her posture very regal, though she wore the same ruffled skirts as her maid. She gave the vendor his money and took two green parrots, slipping them neatly into the cage on the girl's back, then moved off quickly toward the street. The old market woman, La Perla, said, Don't fall in love with that one, guapo. She's taken, and her man carries a gun. Which one is married, the servant girl or the queen? La Perla laughed, and so did her friend, Old Cienfuegos. That's no queen there, she said. More like a puta, was La Perla's opinion. But Old Cienfuegos did not agree. It's her husband who chases women, not the other way around. 
The two of them argued about whether the tiny Azteca queen was a harlot. But they agreed on one thing. That regal little woman is married to the discutido pintador, the much-discussed painter. Who discusses him so much? Cienfuegos said, the newspapers. La Perla said, everyone guapo, because he is a communist. Also the ugliest man you ever saw. Cienfuegos asked how she knew what he looked like. Did he come around courting her? La Perla said she saw him once at the Plaza Caballito, down there with the troublemakers when the workers had their strike. He was as fat as a giant and horribly ugly, with the face of a frog and the teeth of a communist. <laughs> they say he eats the flesh of young girls wrapped in a tortilla. He's a cannibal. And from the look of her, I would say his little bride there might also eat children for lunch. From the look of things today, they're having parrots too. No, guapo, La Perla said, not to eat. Those birds are for his paintings. He paints pictures of the strangest things. If he gets up in the morning and wants to paint the hat of an Englishman, his wife has to go find him the hat of an Englishman. Small or big, if he wants to paint it, eso. She has to run to the market and buy it. She must be carrying a lot of money in her purse then, said Cienfuegos, because the newspaper says right now he's painting the National Palace. Well, it's great to be back here on Writers on a New England stage, and especially with you, Barbara Kingsolver. Let's talk about the title of the book before we get into some of the themes that come up in this book and your many other works. What is, Barbara, a lacuna? It's one of those wonderful words that means a lot of different things. It's a hole or a tunnel or a cave. It's a passage that connects one thing with another. It also is a word that people who, use, who work with old manuscripts know this word because it refers to a missing piece of a manuscript, an important missing passage that somehow has disappeared. And it also refers to missing pieces of history. It means a gap, something that has been erased, such as a part of history that we've all forgotten about. It's such a great word. I was actually writing this novel for several years under a provisional title that I didn't like very much. It was just kind of the label you put on the filing cabinet. I won't even tell you what it is because I didn't <laughs> like it. I knew that th I knew the, the right title was coming. And one day this word occurred to me. It must have been in the back of my mind because this word connects everything in this novel. It's really, this novel is about the missing pieces and literal tunnels and all of these things. It was perfect. I mean, I, I probably, you know, smacked myself on the forehead and said Eureka or something dumb. And I was thrilled until I went downstairs to tell my husband, oh, you know, yay, I have the right title. And I said this word. And he said, 
honey, people don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, they could learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I won't give it away, but it is perfect, and it does tie everything together in the book. And as you said, it means a, an opening or a hole. With this book, Barbara, what holes in our history are you trying to fill? I actually kept discovering more and more. There are a lot of lacunae. The, the, the plural is it's a Latin word, so the plural has got an E on the end. There are a lot of lacunae that I sort of opened up in my research. The, one of the important characters in this book is Lev Trotsky, a historical figure who was extremely important in the Russian Revolution and could have been extremely important to well, the history of the world and the way it's all organized, and he's been erased from history for very interesting reasons. Also, this whole period of American history, when the United States government fiercely censored artists and dissidents of every kind and, and put them in jail, just erased people's voices, was something I wanted to look at. I discovered so many more missing pieces. And the novel itself, in fact, is constructed as a manuscript with missing pieces. So the answer is really for the reader himself or herself to discover. There are probably parts of the book that will be more important to some readers than others. But I think all of us have these missing pieces in our own histories. And one of the things that people say in this novel a lot, and uh, I mean in one way or another, is that the most important part of the story is the part you don't know. The most important thing about a person is what you don't know about them. Even someone you know very well could have a missing piece that you don't know about and that you, you would, uh, would alter your judgment if you knew it better. I'd like to return to this theme that you have talked about, and that is the McCarthy era and your fascination with that era. And about a decade ago, in a New York Times interview about your other really big, big, big book, The Poisonwood Bible, you said that literary critics made a fatal mistake in the 50s by caving to McCarthyism, allowing a gulf to divide art from politics. And this is a theme that comes up in the lacuna as well. So it makes me think that you have been toying with this idea of doing a book about McCarthyism, art, politics, for a long time. I've been thinking about this question for a long time, and I did hope someday I would be able to grapple with it. I always begin a book with a big question that seems so important to me that I could spend years of my life with it and then turn it over to you, to readers, and ask you to spend, not years of your life with it, but at least, you know, three or four days. It needs to be really important. It needs to be an engaging question. And this seemed like a really important question to me. I didn't know quite how I would go about it until more recently, but it's a question that I keep running into why people are so suspicious in this country, or uneasy is probably a better term, uneasy with any combination of art and politics. And I had a hunch it went back to this time when people were really quite fiercely censored. I thought that probably it created a climate of fear that we haven't quite gotten over. Yeah, you're quite critical of that climate of fear in the book, and you say a lot about it. Do you run into trouble, Barbara, sort of looking back now with 2009 hindsight? You know, we all would say, oh, that was bad, that was bad. Were there legitimate fears, though, then, of the country really being taken over by 
people who did not have our best interests at heart. It's very interesting to look at what allowed this country to be so seized by fear because what we think of as the McCarthy era started before McCarthy ever got to the Senate. It really began shortly after World War II. Actually, during World War II, Joe Stalin was our best friend, according to Life magazine, who called him uh, Tom Paine and Paul Bunyan rolled into one. He was in that, that that's a quote. This, I didn't make this stuff up. That's the interesting thing, is that while this is a novel, it is steeped in fact. I didn't invent this. This all really happened. And I didn't, it's interesting that you raise my sort of criticism of it. I really just give it to you as a reader. All I'm doing is saying, look what happened. And I'm, the extra thing you can do with a novel that, that journalism or nonfiction can't do is I can put you there and I can actually put you in the life, in the sort of heart and mind and soul of a character who has to suffer the consequences. You get to decide whether this was right or wrong, what made it, what were the social circumstances that allowed this culture of fear to come up, where did it come from and why. But as an extra bonus with a novel, you don't just judge it from the outside, you feel it. It gives you an extra sensation of what it was. And that gives you its worth. That really lets you make decisions based on genuine human import. Do you think that that separation of art and politics that you felt really came apart, especially during the McCarthy era, do you think that's changed, Barbara, now in our time, that the two have gotten back together? Or do we still make this distinct separation? We're still really uneasy with it in this country. I, I know this because I run into it all the time. And you know what's funny? It's just here. Other countries don't make the separation. Mexico, for example, celebrates its most political artists, such as Diego Rivera, as national heroes. Europe gives Nobel Prizes to their most political artists. Uh, many countries elect their most political poets to public office. It's in the rest of the world, well, you know, when we say politics, it's that can mean many things, but just I think that what we're talking about here is the affairs of humankind that give power to some over others and the possibilities of addressing those differences in power based on race, based on gender, based on class, or what have you. Sort of rattling the cage of the status quo and sort of asking for more social justice. I think that's what we're talking about here when we say politics. And in every other country where I've ever been and most countries I've read about, that's absolutely considered the normal domain of art. So I've always wondered, why is it a problem here? That's what really got me thinking that we must have, it's like PTSD. You know, we, 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 <laughs> we must be in some sort of post-traumatic stress that we can't just get over this we keep saying, oh, well, that's political. Can that be art? When I go on book tour in Europe, you know, nobody asks me that. Well, and I want to ask you about your own politics and how they play into your novels. But just on this a little bit more, some people would say rap music is political. Books like The Color Purple are political. Michael Moore's movies are political. Uh, here in New Hampshire, Maxine Cuman's poetry is political. So we do see some of that. I think 
all good art is political. I think that, well, art can be anything it wants to be. It can address important questions or it can address big questions or small questions. It can tackle whatever it wants and people can take it or leave it. But good art moves people in some direction. I think anyone would agree with this. A good work of art takes you somewhere in your life that you haven't been before. A novel is particularly good at this because a novel actually puts you inside the life of someone you've never been before. Maybe someone of, who's a whole different ethnicity from you, who li lives in a different country, who's on the other side of some divide. And what it does is builds empathy for the theoretical stranger. That is a political act. A novel brings you into another point of view. It could be a point of view anywhere on the political spectrum. It's interesting that the artists you raise tend to be considered more leftists, but it could move you in a rightward direction also. A novel, regardless of the politics of the novelist, a novel creates empathy for someone you've not been. It shifts you into another point of view that's political. It's powerful. I think that what novelists at minimum should do as moral people is to own up to that power, to understand that we are wielding something very potent here and to use it carefully and wisely. I want to ask you about a big theme in the lacuna that you mentioned in your opening remarks as well. Frequent and harsh critiques of the media at that time, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and you called the howlers and so forth. Harrison Shepard calls journalists howlers relating to the monkeys. What about today's media, Barbara? Do you think that everybody in the media, from Fox News to NPR to the New York Times to the blogs to the web pages, are they all to some extent howlers today? Well, I would say that this novel, first of all, I'm going to say again that I didn't make this up. And I was pretty amazed to see so much yellow journalism in the, I read just tons and tons of archives, old newspapers and magazines from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And even what we think of as mainstream media referred to Japanese people as Japs. I mean, it used language that just seems harrowing to me now, but loved passing on these stories about evildoers of all kinds, you know, sort of to generate propaganda during wartime. It was so amazing to me that the media were this sort of, well, we would say irresponsible, printing scare stories that were not, not evidence-based. I thought, if I try to represent this, people think I'm making it up. So actually used throughout this novel real news stories from the New York Times, from Life magazine. I had to get permission to use them, you know, and pay copyright fees so that I could put these in here so you're not so you wouldn't say, oh she's just making this up. It's real. Some of I interspersed also newspaper articles that I wrote that are that are made up, that are fictional because they have to do with the character and what happens to him. But Many people who've read it and commented on it said they didn't know which was real and which was not. So I just put a handy list in the front on the first page of the novel so you can go back and see which of these articles are real. And then to move from there forward, I kept thinking 
nothing has changed, really. When the top story of the week is about a boy that didn't fall out of a balloon because he wasn't in there, <laughs> and that's really the top story. You know, I'm not making this up. So um, I would say this book is an indictment of lazy journalism, and it will be interesting to see who steps forward to be offended. <laughs> you have acknowledged the need to give people a good story. You're not just your dose of political thought, but you're... I wouldn't dream of just wanting... To, <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually... I don't even li like to... I never tell people what to do. Not even in my own life. And I think that a good novel is like a walk with that really good kind of friend. You know, you have certain friends you really want to talk to when you have a big problem because they're not going to tell you what to do. You're going to walk down a trail with them, or, you know, the sidewalk, and you're going to talk about all these big things, and she's there, and she's listening, and she's saying, well, yeah, and there's this part, and did you think about this part? And then when you're finished, she turns to you and says, what do you think? That's what a novel does. That's what I want to do when I write. It doesn't matter what I think. I would never dream of telling people what to think. That doesn't interest me. If I were that kind of person, I think I would have gone into a different line of work because I don't think that's a good approach for an artist. So you're thinking about striking that balance of making your point, but making it in a way that a friend would make, allowing you to come to your own conclusions. Yeah, exactly. I don't make points. I ask. I ask questions. I have a couple more questions okay. from our audience. And we often have writers and aspiring writers here who always want to know about the writing process. And I wonder, one of them wants to know how your writing process has changed since moving from Tucson to Appalachia. Well, my writing process hasn't. Um, the, the, the most important thing I can say about my writing process is that I'm a mother. I became an author and a mother on the same day, if you can believe it. <laughs> my, my, um, my oldest daughter is 22 years, 22 years old. My youngest is 13. Um, so I've had a small kid in the house for a long time. And the day that my eldest was born, uh, sorry, the day at like 16 hours after she was born, I came home from the hospital and the message machine was beeping, remember those? And it was a call saying that HarperCollins was going to publish my first novel, The Bean Trees. And I, you know, I was... I, I was in a hormonal stupor. I, I had just made this beautiful baby. I was the queen of the world. I thought, oh, that's nice. I, Harper Collins, good. And um, <laughs> then, you know, eventually it hit me that this was my new profession, that I would, get, I would be able to make a living. Before that, I'd been a journalist and, and a scientist and many, many other things, a lab technician, lots of other jobs. But being a writer for a living, being an, a, an, a novelist for a living, was a miracle to me, and yet I was also the mother of a baby. So m for my whole, and that, and that didn't, I mean, 
I'm no longer the mother of a baby, but sometimes. (laughs) 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 Um, And vice versa. Um, So my writing process has always been defined by the school bus. What time it comes? It comes in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) It comes in the evening. Like any other working mother, I've always worked when my kids were in someone else's care, as, as you know, as, as many people know. Working parents, I should say. Um, this means I don't have time to sit around waiting for the muse. You know, my muse carries a baseball bat. <laughs> I get right down to work. I've never had time for writer's block. It just, I just have to be very efficient. And so I sit down to work, and writing a novel is a special is 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 different from nonfiction in that it you really you go into another world. I mean, people talk to you and you talk back. <laughs> you you say, "Oh, goodbye, family. I'm going to spend time now with my imaginary people uh, <laughs> for hours and hours and hours." And uh, you know, and then when the day when the day's work ends, I have to snap out of that. You know, I have to just go down to the kitchen and and, uh, start dinner. So it does, you know, without medication. So so it does require a kind of, I guess, a kind of discipline of pulling myself back out of that place where sometimes I would like to stay. But it's probably healthy. It's probably for the best. Well, about that process of writing, uh, I have read, Barbara, that you love, unlike maybe some other writers, you love the process of editing, rewriting, you know, tearing it up and rewriting it again. Revision is my favorite, favorite thing. I love revision. I think, I, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think most uh, writers much prefer revision to writing a first draft. Writing a first draft feels like hoeing a row of potatoes. You just keep going till you get to the end. After that, the fun begins because then you get to go backwards. You get to, you become unstuck in time. You know, you move back and forth through your through your creation, tying everything together. It's so wonderful to go back and begin again, already knowing the ending. Because then, and sometimes the last paragraph becomes the first paragraph. And and I do love. Word processing. I mean, a computer really helps. This is—it's funny that the novel as a form has changed very, very little in you know 400 years. It's still basically what it's always been, which you can't say about too many other forms of art. Um, and I think that w- what we do as novelists hasn't changed a lot. But man, does a computer help! <laughs> I don't—I can't even imagine how Charles Dickens did what he did, you know, writing pieces at it. I mean, he, well, maybe we don't need to go into that, but he wrote his, his greatest novels as serials, which were sent out. I mean, people were waiting on the docks for the next chapter of Great Expectations. He had to finish it and send it out. He could imagine how much better that novel could have been if he'd had a, com- if he'd had a computer. <laughs> really. I'm serious. I, I hope that doesn't sound heretical, but I think if he were sitting here, he would agree with me. I swear to you. So um, I love being able to move pieces of text around, and I love the delete key. You know, just <laughs> boink, it's gone. It doesn't have to, you know, it's... I, I, I always say that the first 
getting started is also very hard. The first hundred pages should get thrown away, you know, and and that used to be really depressing to me to begin a book by writing pages and pages and pages that I knew had to be thrown away, and they pile, you know, they the, think of all those dead trees. It's so sad. Um, but now I can just delete them. And by the way, I thought of a new way to think of this that makes me feel better. I'm writing pages minus 100 to zero. They have to get written. It's like digging for gold. You know, you have to get rid of the dirt before you get to the gold. So the beginning is, is, is rugged. You ha it takes a while just to s hit your stride, find the voice. But even once you do, after you find where it's going to go, then you're so informed. It's like you get to be, uh, well, you're omniscient. You can inform every slant of light, everything in a room, every piece of dialogue, everything that happens can be invested with, with meaning, with, with this sort of rich subtext that's, that's leaning into your story that moves it forward, foreshadowing all of these things. That's the fun part. I would do it forever. I mean, sometimes my publishers have to kind of pry a manuscript out of my fingers because I could keep, you know, I could do this for, I could just keep making it better. And then give me great expectations. No, just kidding, just kidding. No. <laughs> One last question for you, and I have this in several forms from okay. our audience. Um, a lot of people tonight want to know if you are working on a new book, and can you give us a little preview? This is the question that uh, writers on book tour smile through their teeth when they answer, I would love to be working on a book, but... I also love being here with you. So, and you can, um, um, yes, I, yes, I, I, being, working on a novel for me feels like being in love. And so I'm, I'm, I'm there as much as humanly possible. Uh, when, when a book is published, it is also important to go out into the world, put writing aside for, you know, a few weeks and meet the people who, really make this happen. And that is so important to me. And I'm, and I'm not kidding. I'm not just being polite. I am really happy to be here because this is what I think about a novel or a work of art in general. When I finish it, it's half done. When you read it, it's all done. You finish it. Whatever happens in your heart when you take in a work of art, is the completion of that act. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you.